Good evening, everybody. Pastor Russ here, and we are on our final session here with Brian Young in this End Times Eschatology study here, week number six. And uh, Brian, we're looking forward to the things you have tonight as we bring this all to a close. And uh, just let's take a moment here to pray, and then we'll just let Brian take things over and guide us through the word. So would you bow your heads with me as we pray together? Father, we thank you so much for this study that we've had with Brian. And Lord, our time that was spent in your word and, and Lord seeking you and, and understanding the things to come and, and the blessings that you have for those who are in Christ and the things that are, are just a part of your kingdom, both now and forever. And we just thank you, Lord, for this study. We ask for your grace upon things tonight. Uh, Lord, use Brian, speak through him. And we lift this all to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, I am going to get my screen shared here for you. I know that I am uh, uh, sad to see this be our last session. I hope you guys are as well. Um, tonight we are going to talk about something that is talked about uh, all the time, and that is the mark of the beast. Uh, I, if you're like me, I have heard what the mark of the beast could be, might be for years, um, from social security numbers to barcodes to computer-related things to, uh, you know, just implants that they're putting into us uh, for tracking your dogs, your, your pets, all kinds of things. And I'm going to kind of challenge you a little bit tonight to maybe think outside of the box that... Um, what we always hear, not to say is wrong, but that we might need to have a broader perspective of things. Um, uh, Daniel Joseph had talked about this, and I just was uh, really blessed by it. And so I kind of put together some things here that will uh, mirror that as well. Um, before we get too far into it, I'm just going to kind of challenge you to think about a couple of things. One of the things that uh, we could really talk two, three weeks on this alone, much like we could have with just about anything that we've done throughout this series. Um, but one of the things that people ask a lot is, will this be a physical mark, a tattoo type thing, or, you know, something that you can see visibly? And typically people will say, well, absolutely, it has to be. You can't buy or sell without it and, and that type of thing. And so you would have to have some way of knowing that it was there. Well, I, I believe that, you know, that that is a very real possibility. I'm not saying that is not true, but I am going to say this. I think the possibility is that it may not necessarily be uh, something that has to be seen by others. And that might be a shock to some of you. Hang on. We'll get to that as we... Uh, Go in a little bit further, I think you'll understand. Uh, another thing is, is people always ask, can this mark of the beast be taken accidentally? Well, I, I think yes. I used to say no, but I think as we look at what this mark of the beast might be, you might see that uh, it could be. If we are not in the word and we are not uh, following the scriptures and holding God's word in basically what it is, God's word, as the inerrant, authoritative word of God, then I think we could be deceived quite easily. Uh, if you think about Matthew, I think it's chapter 7, where Jesus 
basically these people go before him at the end of time and they say, Lord, Lord, we, we perform miracles in your name. We cast out demons. And he says, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I, I know not who you are. These are people who were deceived. They truly thought that they were serving the Lord because they were casting out demons, doing miracles. I don't know. Maybe their motives were wrong. Uh, there, there could be a number of reasons. But for sure, I can say this. They were deceived. This is the kind of thing the devil is in the business of, deception. He is the great deceiver, and that's what he wants to do. And if he can make people feel like they're saved, uh, through a number of different ways, whether it be feel like they're saved because they've done enough good works, which if you know your scriptures, we know that that's impossible. You cannot do enough good works because uh, apart from Christ, there is no salvation. It is not by works that we are saved. But yet there are many out there who have been deceived in believing that. And so that's just one example. Um, a lot of people uh, have been talking lately about the vaccine that uh, is in the news all the time for this COVID-19. Could that be a mark of the beast? And honestly, I'd have to say possibly. Not saying it is. Don't get, you know, don't go saying that Brian said the, the vaccine is the mark, because I'm not. But when we look at what this is, you will see that it could easily look something like that. Now, um, we, again, we could talk a lot about the vaccine, but let me explain what I mean by this first. Um, whatever this mark of the beast is, one thing is for sure. It is tied into the worship of the beast. Revelation is very clear about that. We're going to see this later. When we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17, it says, Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? Now, we see that we are not to eat food sacrificed to idols. It tells us that in the New Testament. Um, that was one of the things in even Acts chapter 15 that they were warned about. And you may say, well, what's the deal with that? Well, 1 Corinthians 10 says that very thing, that if, if we eat of these sacrifices that have been offered to the devil, ultimately, you are a partaker of the altar. Now, even in Acts chapter 15, it says that we are not to eat food sacrificed to idols, as I said. And this was for the Gentile church. So what do we do with that? And how does that fit into vaccines? Well, without getting into too much detail with it tonight before we move on here, um, I want you to know that many of the vaccines that we have today already uh, are utilizing uh, aborted fetuses. And they use that in the vaccine so that we literally are partaking of aborted fetuses. Now, don't freak out if you've had vaccines or anything like that. What I'm saying is this. A, a Satanist, they see that one of the greatest acts of worship is to take the life of another, especially these little children. And this is why we see human sacrifices throughout history being done within Satanism. And so when we see in 1 Corinthians uh, 3.16 that uh, it, it says that we are God's temple. And the question that some pose is, are we uh, defiling that temple by putting in these sacrifices 
of aborted fetuses into our bodies. Now, again, I'm not saying that if you've had vaccines, I have, that, uh, oh no, now we, we've got the mark of the beast and we're gonna go to hell or, or whatever. What I'm saying is, is there's a connection to worship with the mark of the beast. And clearly in our society with the, I believe the devil is behind abortion and the, the, the killing of millions of babies. And yet they are being put in the vaccines and then those vaccines are then put into us and we are not to partake of uh, feasts or, or uh, sacrifices made to idols. Now I know that might seem like a stretch and, and all of that. Right now, all I'm trying to get you to do is think outside of the box, okay? You can agree with me on that. You can disagree with me on that. Uh, what I'm saying is I just want you to think differently here tonight. Um, another aspect of this, um, back in Daniel, uh, when we were looking at that in our first couple of weeks, back in chapter seven, we saw that there were four beasts and these four beasts represented four kingdoms. Then in chapter eight, uh, basically the attention all went to the third beast or that beast of the kingdom of Greece. It was that goat that never touched the ground as it went across the earth. Well, we see that later um, in history, a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes, because that goat, uh, his horn was broke off and then three other or four other horns come from him. Those were the four kingdoms that were uh, coming up out of the kingdom of Greece. And one of them was for the Seleucid kingdom, which was Antiochus IV. And Antiochus IV, I would say most theologians and certainly the Jewish people saw Antiochus IV as a picture of the Antichrist. And so if you want to understand the Antichrist, you want to understand the mark of the beast that we're going to dive into here now shortly, uh, I think you need to understand history because those are the things that are patterns of what are to happen in the future. And uh, we see that Antiochus, as we've talked about in, in earlier studies, he exalted himself uh, as a god. He went after the saints to get them to defile themselves, to defile the temple. Uh, he went after the house of worship, wouldn't allow them to fellowship, would not allow them to praise and worship God. And so these are the things that the Antichrist is going to do today as well. And these are the very things that if we kind of look at our society and what's going on, that uh, COVID in, in some ways is being used to do those very things, to try and keep uh, the fellowship of the saints and the communion of the saints and the worship from taking place. Now, you know, because our, our gatherings are put down, there's talk now that there won't be Christmas. Uh, they already kind of pretty well, you know, put a, a damper on Easter and uh, Christmas is next. And the question might be with these vaccines, as already is being talked about, that maybe with these vaccines, you will not be able to go into a store. You will not be able to buy or sell. You will not be able to fly. You will not be able to go to church. You will not be able to do all kinds of things as we're seeing in the news. Now, I'm not gonna go through all the news articles that show you all of those things that are indeed uh, being proposed and, and talking about. We're already seeing it. You can't even go to concerts, uh, ticket masters, without having this vaccine. Again, not saying the vaccine is the mark, but saying, this is the type of thing 
that we need to be looking at. When there are things that are being forced upon you and are going to limit your ability to worship, to fellowship, to gather, and that type of thing. So let's get started with that long introduction uh, into this mark of the beast. So Revelation chapter 13, verse 16 is where we see it says, He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. So is this physical? It sounds like it here. You got a mark on your right hand, you got a mark on, or on your forehead. That sounds physical, but is it possible that this could also be kind of a spiritual mark? Because the placement that the Bible is saying is very specific here. Why the right hand? Why on the forehead? Well, I want to show you that this concept has been debated for years, and it really draws us into eschatology, this idea of the mark of the beast. And that's why I thought this was important to talk about tonight. What really is the mark? Is it that social security number, a UPC, the vaccine? What's going on here? But the scriptures are clear that it is something, it is literal, it is uh, going to happen. But literally what? <laughs> literally a mark or literally something that's spiritual, which may seem like a contradiction, but I think you're going to understand. Let's uh, move on here. And we see this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 30. I want to show you what scripture, uh, the, the picture that is painted when it talks about the right hand in the forehead in scripture, because we need to let scripture interpret the scriptures. In Matthew 5.30, we see that it says, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Now, here we're talking about warning us not to be falling into sin. Why did he say your right hand causes you to sin? Why not he say if your hand? Because does this mean that left-handers are, you know, free and clear? No, there's a reason. And I think in the first century, I think anybody that was hearing Yeshua talk about these things would have known because they were familiar with Scripture and they were familiar with the right hand meant. Because as you're going to see, this right hand is representative of a choice that you make. A choice to sin or a choice to reject that sin. In other words, what he's saying is if your right hand is causing you to sin, you have a choice to either resist it or go along with it. And in this case, this right hand is clearly viewed as a negative uh, a negative context here. And I believe that that is intentional and consistent with Jewish thought. So I'm going to take you to Psalm 144, verse 11, and I want to kind of continue to build on this. It says this, Rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners, whose mouth speaks lying words, and whose right hand is the right hand of falsehood. So here we're seeing again men choosing to sin. So in the first century, like I said, when a Jew was reading about the right hand, where the mark is to be put, these are some of the scriptures that would have come into their mind. 
that the right hand is a symbol of either a good choice or a bad choice, but nonetheless a decision. Let me uh, continue here. We read in Psalm 16, verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Now, in this case, we see that it is in a positive context. God is at your right hand. And uh, this is what David is basically saying. David is saying, I choose God. I choose to follow him. We see that Yeshua, Jesus, sits at the right hand of God. Why? Because it was the place of honor. It was a place of decision. And God chose him, chose Jesus, to redeem and judge the world. And it is that place of honor and decision at the right hand. And we can look at Matthew. Matthew 25, verse 33, he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Why? Because again, it's a matter of choice. On his right hand, this is where God chooses those who follow him. In the goats, they go on the left. This isn't an accident. Matthew 6, 3, but when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Which one? It's your right hand that's doing the good deed. And yet, this is what we're seeing here that um, it is elevated as a decision, a choice of obedience. And I could go through many, many other scriptures in the Old Testament as well, talking about this very thing. But what I want you to see is that there's enough um, separation or highlighting of the right hand in scripture that when you read it in Revelation, you can't just think it from the, the physical realm. We need to think of it from the spiritual, biblical uh, perspective. So when we go to Ezekiel chapter 46, verse 10, it's, uh, it says this, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. This is one of my favorite verses because uh, having a creation ministry, when we start at the beginning, we start at creation. I believe that Genesis is a, a picture of what we see in Revelation, that you can't understand Revelation without Genesis. And when he says, I'm declaring the end, you could maybe even say, I declare what's going to happen in the end of times from what happened at the very beginning of time. From ancient times, things that are, are not yet done. In other words, you look at the ancient times, and you're going to see that that's a pattern, a picture, a symbol of what is going to happen. You might say history repeats itself, or prophetically, that there are many prophecies that lead up to the final prophetic fulfillment. And that is uh, important when we go back to Genesis here tonight, because I want to show you some parallels between Genesis and Revelation that... I think the book of Revelation is clearly pointing out. When we read the book of Revelation, when we look at eschatology, we read it with a Western mind that is so literal and so um, just concrete. But again, Scripture has to interpret Scripture. In Genesis 3.1, in the garden, it said this, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? 
Now, this is really kind of the law of first mention. The, this is the very first time we see the devil introduced, and he is now here called the Nahash, the serpent. You might recall in the desert when uh, they were bitten by snakes, they were uh, put up this uh, bronze snake that was lifted up. It was called Nahushtan. Why? Because it comes from that word Nahush, Nahash, uh, meaning serpent. Well, this title is very significant because it means uh, in the Hebrew to enchant, to allure, uh, through deception, almost like witchcraft. It, it's subtle, but yet uh, dangerous. It's like a poison. And when we go to Revelation 12, 9, though, it says, so the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth. Well, that serpent of old that word right there should take people's minds. Oh, of old, ancient times, back to Genesis. In other words, what he's doing is he's making known the end from the beginning. And Revelation could have described Satan in all different kinds of ways. He could have called him the liar, a murderer, you know, the deceiver. But he chooses this word very carefully, that serpent of old to take you back to the garden. And I believe that that is very intentional. That it points out he is that deceiver who is going to allure and who is going to enchant uh, to lead people astray. He is the deceiver as well of the whole world. Not just, you know, this little group over here, but the whole world he is trying to deceive. As we continue on this thought, I want to look at a couple of other things. It says here in Genesis 3 as well that now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Well, that is important because it says that the serpent is more cunning. That is basically setting up a hierarchical uh, position here. It means the serpent is the head. He is above all these other beasts, all these other beasts of the field. He is more cunning. Well, that is exactly what we see in Revelation chapter 13, verse 4. So they worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast. So in Revelation, we see a hierarchy, and that the dragon, that serpent of old, is going to be high enough to give authority to those underneath him. Just like we see in the Garden of Eden, that same relationship is being pointed out here. And again, I think that's because the end is being declared from the beginning. So when it says here, has God indeed said, this is how Satan his number one way of deceiving and alluring and enchanting is to get people to doubt the word of God. Did God really say? Are you sure that's what scripture says? And we begin to doubt. We begin to let our culture interpret the scriptures. We begin to let our own desires, our own wants, our own motives. And we must not doubt God's word. The first thing the devil does, and I've talked about this before, is he gets you to doubt the word of God. And then he's going to just outright call God a liar. He's, oh, you're not going to die, like God had said. So question the Bible, then call it wrong. 
That is the spirit of the Antichrist right there. And we need to watch for that. That means you need to know the scriptures, you need to be studying them, and you need to take everything that's going on in society, whether it be a vaccine or them telling them you can't worship or, or whatever the case might be, and you need to measure that according to the word of God. Not your culture, not your experiences, because this is how the devil traps us. In verse 2, he goes on, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You're not going to die. So again, like I said before, first get you to doubt it, then basically call God a liar. And basically what's going on here is the devil says it's okay for you, Eve, to eat that which is forbidden. Go ahead, defile your temple. And this is really, Eve doubted the very first food law ever given in scripture. And how he did it was calling God a liar and removing the fear of God by saying, oh, you're not going to die. It's okay. You don't need to be afraid. Well, why am I pointing this out? Because what I want you to see is that I think that this fear has been removed from our society today within many churches. That there is no fear of God. There is no respect about obeying or keeping the commandments of God because there's nothing we can do to be saved. So therefore we do nothing and we don't even obey. Well, that goes contrary to scripture. Uh, scripture is filled with this dual paradox of if you have faith, you will obey. A tree is judged by its fruit. James, faith without works is dead. A man is not justified by faith alone, James says. And so the devil has gotten the church to be deceived by thinking that obedience doesn't matter. You're not going to die. There's no consequence to, to living in disobedience. You sure you still have faith. And then what happens? Lord, Lord, we perform miracles in your name. We cast out demons. And Jesus says, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness or iniquity. Law and that's what I'm saying is I think that Satan is using the same tricks and we keep falling for it. Well, I'm going to take you to Deuteronomy 6.4 because it kind of gives us some understanding of these commandments. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. See, following the giving of the Ten Commandments, we get this. This is called the Shema. The, this is basically one of the most elevated verses in all of Judaism. Because it's basically saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. But what I want you to see is that the commandments here are related to the heart. And what's the heart related to? Loving God. In other words, obedience is a sign of our love for God. It's a sign of where our heart is. So if you are living in disobedience, do you really have a heart for God? 
No, you don't. And that's a question that every person needs to ask themselves. Do I have a heart for God's commandments? Now, again, just to reiterate, because this gets to be touchy on for some people sometime, I'm not saying you can be good enough to get to heaven. I'm saying you can't obey enough to get to heaven. Faith is in God. That's what gets you to heaven. It's God's grace, his mercy that gets you there. But if you have faith, you will have a heart for God. If you have a heart for God, the commandments and obedience is going to be important for you as a Christian. Look at what 1 John chapter 5, verse 2 says, By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Again, faith is tied to obedience here. Deuteronomy 6.7 says this, You shall teach them the commands diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Did you notice something here? He's talking about the commandments of God, how we are to teach them to our children all the time. When, when you're, you know, go to bed, when you get up, when you walk out throughout your day, this is extremely important because as I said, love is what drives us. John shows Jesus saying, if you love me, you will do what I say. So now we're talking about these commandments, doing what God says, and where are they to be put? Well, it says, Put them as a sign on your hand and as frontlets between your eyes. In other words, the forehead. This is why in Judaism, they have these phylacteries that they will put on their forehead and they put it on their hand and bind their hand because they are putting the word of God on their hand and on their forehead. The very same place that the mark of the beast is supposed to be put. That's important. Remember at Passover, the star of the show is the Passover lamb, right? That's a, a picture of Yeshua to come, Jesus, the, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And when the blood was applied to your door, to your home, you were spared from the wrath of God. Nothing could spare these Israelites. They could be as obedient as they want, nothing would spare them but the blood of the lamb. The same is true for us today. But after Passover, what's interesting is God freed them. He delivered them. He brought redemption. He takes them out of Egypt, and then he gives the commandments. This is the same picture we see in the New Testament. Jesus died on the cross for us. He became the Passover lamb for us. And then he says, now if you love me, do what I say. Thou shalt and thou shalt not. Not as a means of being saved. The lamb did that. The lamb of God. But as a means of expressing your love and faith in that lamb. So, 
I'm going to show you this connection with Passover here. When we go back there in Exodus chapter 13, verse 7, it says this, Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and no leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your quarters. And you shall tell your son in that day, saying, This is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. So here's the Passover. He's saying you got to keep this, and here's why. It shall be as a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the Lord's law may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. I don't think that this is an accident that the commandments, now keep in mind, this is before the Ten Commandments are even given. We see God saying, this Passover you are to keep, that's the command in itself, year after year, forever. Why? Because this is a sign that is to be on your hand and your forehead that the Lord's law is in your mouth. It needs to be in your mouth. That I delivered you, and because I delivered you, you will obey me. You're going to want to obey me. You're going to have a heart to obey me. So with all of this in mind, I find it very interesting that it isn't just in Revelation that all of a sudden the right hand and our forehead are, are, are popping up. We have seen throughout Scripture, all the way back here to Exodus 13, that there is something to do with the hand and the forehead for the commandments of God. So Revelation 12, 17, the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who do what? who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Well, what's the mark of God? Well, the previous slide showed you it's obedience to the commandments. That is a mark of God. That is one of the things that is a mark that distinguishes you from the world. You keep, you keep the commandments of God. You might say that you're a good moral person. If you aren't a good moral person, people would look at you and say, clearly, you're not a Christian. So in a sense, if you want to understand the mark of the beast, I think you need to understand first the mark of God, because Satan always is going to try to mimic and copy what God does, right? God is a trinity. We see in Revelation chapter 12 and 13, Satan is a trinity. God is called the morning star. Jesus, or, uh, Jesus is, and we see Satan called the morning star. Virtually everything that God does, Satan tries to mimic. There's a Holy Spirit today, yet there is a false spirit that looks very much like what the Holy Spirit does today. And therefore, the mark of God needs to be understood. And what the mark of God is, what basically people ought to be able to look at you and say, they've got the mark of God. They are obedient. They have a heart for Jesus a heart for the word of God. Is that visible? Absolutely. Is it physical though? Not necessarily, is it? It's not like you have a tattoo that says, you know, I'm a Christian. And yet this is what we see throughout the Bible is that the mark of God was to be put on your hand and your forehead. Why? Because it's where your hand that you serve God and it's your right hand, by the way, that is the one that is that choice of doing good, which is why, as I said, God 
has, Jesus sits at the right hand of God. Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing in good works. So these are the kind of things that I think we need to think about to understand the mark of the beast is the mark of God first, because it's going to be the antithesis of the mark of God. Revelation chapter 14, verse 11 says this, And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast and his image. And whoever receives the mark of his name, here is the patience of the saints who bear, uh, here bear those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So notice here, this mark of the beast is associated with what? Worship of the beast. What is worship? following, obeying the rules of who you're worshiping. You see, obedience is a form of worship. And so here in these verses, we are seeing this contrast here. Those who have the mark of the beast, those who worship the beast, those who obey the beast, and then the contrast is those who obey God or have God's mark. And notice as well here the twofold aspect of the gospel that I've already been talking about here tonight. It says that they, those who keep the commandments of God, that's obedience, and the faith of Jesus, that's belief. Belief and obedience go together. And that's the twofold aspect here. Uh, we go to Revelation 20. And in Revelation 20, it says this. I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. You see, you take obedience out of the equation and what happens? If you're not obeying God, well, you're worshiping the beast. Those who obey Jesus are those who do not have the mark of the beast. In other words, again, obedience is connected to receiving a mark. Okay, the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped, who had obeyed God. So clearly there's a connection here. I believe now that we've kind of explained possibly what this mark is in a sense, that it is worship, it is obedience or disobedience. Have you ever thought to yourself how unfair it is that it seems that this one generation in the time of revelation, that if they take this mark, they're automatically doomed to hell. And it's like, boy, I hope I don't live in that generation because what if I would take that mark? And I mean, there's no forgiveness for it. It's just boom, automatic right to hell. Well, I don't really believe that that's the case. I believe that every generation that has walked on earth since Christ was here has had a choice to take the mark of the beast. A choice to either worship God, obey him, or disobey him and basically take the mark of the beast. Otherwise, I, I think it would be kind of unfair. Why would only the last generation be put to this test? In Revelation, there is the Antichrist. But remember, John said that there would be many Antichrists. 
right? What does that mean? Well, it means there's going to be a lot of them leading up to the Antichrist, to the final one. And so clearly throughout history, there have been many Antichrists and many Antichrists with many marks, I believe. Point being, everyone who takes the mark is going to go to the lake of fire. Why? Because they are not covered by the blood of Jesus. Why? Because they don't know him. They don't have a heart for Jesus. They're not obeying him. And in not obeying him, you have made your choice. And that is to take the mark of the beast. So does everyone who has disobeyed or taken the mark go to hell? Well, under that definition, yes, they would. Every generation has had a mark of the beast moment. And so what I want to do is show you that throughout history, there are things that would easily fit into the very literal interpretation of the book of Revelation. But it also fits into what I've been telling you now, the spiritual application of the mark of the beast. Josephus here is going to be talking in his War of the Jews um, about the Roman Emperor Caligula. Now, Caligula was a cruel emperor. And this is what Josephus says. Now, Caius Caesar did so grossly abuse the fortune he had arrived at. In other words, he, mis he abused his power as to make or take himself to be a god. Well, what's the Antichrist supposed to do? He exalts himself as a god. That's the same thing Antiochus IV did way back in 164 BC. And it says, and to desire to be so called also. Wanted to be called a god. What did Antiochus do? His name was Antiochus IV. He took the name Antiochus Epiphanes, which means God manifest. And it says, and to cut off those of the greatest nobility out of his country. He also extended his impiety as far as the Jews. Accordingly, he sent Petonius with an army to Jerusalem to place his statues in the temple and commanded him that in case of the Jews would not admit of them, that he should slay those that opposed it and carry all the rest of the nation into captivity. In other words, he set a statue of himself as a god in the temple, or as Daniel talked about, as we said earlier, when you see the abomination that causes desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, when it's set up in the temple, that is what Antiochus Epiphanes did. He set up a statue of Zeus in the temple, defiling it, sacrificed a pig on the altar. So bottom line is this is a, a picture. This is a spirit of the Antichrist that we are seeing here. And this is the kind of thing you need to be looking for. This is the type of thing that is going to happen time and time again until the final fulfillment of it. Now, this plan of his never really came to fruition because Caligula was killed. But soon afterward, there was another Roman emperor who was even worse, named Nero, who came into power. Now, ironically, Nero's name is even when you use the, the number uh, of the letters in the Hebrew alphabet, it came to 666. And so there were many, even in that century, who saw Nero as the Antichrist. Revelation was coming about. It was happening right there. 
So uh, Tacitus, the, uh, in the Annals, he says this about uh, Nero. All human efforts, all the lavish gifts of the emperor and the propitiations of the gods did not banish the sinister belief that the conflagration was the result of an order. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Now, let me give you some background of what he's talking about here. In AD 64, uh, Nero, it seems, started Rome on fire. And whispers, in any way, were going around that Nero is the one that was to blame for these fires. So to take the heat off of himself, he blamed the Christians for this fire. And as a result, starting arresting them and torturing and inflicting all kinds of, of, of pain on them. Again, an anti-Christ figure or picture. Just like Hitler saying Jews were the problems for their financial problems, that uh, we have to get rid of the Jew. They're the, the problem. That's what Nero was doing. I think Hitler was an antichrist picture as well. Look at the marks that they took with the swastikas and, and all of that type of thing. The point being is there isn't just one in history. There are many. He goes on and he says this. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty then. Upon their information, basically they were being interrogated, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city as of the hatred against mankind. Isn't that funny? That's exactly how Christians are viewed today. Christians are the ones that are being hated because we're the bigots. We're the ones that are, are hate-filled when it's really quite the opposite. It goes on, mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. You want to talk about a mark of the beast situation? Uh, here it is. If you abandon Christ, you could keep going on living as a Roman citizen here, as uh, this historian will go on to tell you. You had a choice. And this is a secular Roman historian recording this. We can move to the second century, and we get uh, Pliny's letter to Trajan. Now, this is basically around 112 A.D., and basically what is happening here is Pliny is writing to Trajan for guidance in how you're supposed to handle all of these Christians that he's arresting. And he, too, is interrogating them, but he doesn't know the best way to do it. So he's looking for advice. How do I interrogate and torture these guys? All right. So not a good thing going on here. But um, Trajan... Again, no friend of Christianity, nor was Pliny. And here's what he says. Having never been present at any trials of the Christians, I'm unacquainted with the method and limits to be observed, either in examining or punishing them, the Christians. Whether any difference is to be made on account of age or no distinction allowed between the youngest and the adult. In other words, do you treat a child the same way you treat an adult? Whether repentance admits to a pardon like, if they say, fine, I, I recant, I don't believe in Jesus anymore, okay, you're free to go. 
Or if a man has been once a Christian, it avails him nothing to recant. Too late, you made your choice. Whether the mere profession of Christianity, albeit without crimes, or only the crimes associated therewith are punishable in all these points, I am greatly doubtful. He goes on. In the meanwhile, the method I have observed towards those who have been denounced to me as Christians is this. I interrogated them whether they were Christians. If they confessed it, I repeated the question twice again, adding the threat of capital punishment if they still persevered. I ordered them to be executed. So these people were asked three times and he gave them three opportunities. And if they continued to be, say, yes, I believe in Jesus. Yes, I'm a Christian. They were executed. Again, you want to talk about a mark of the beast moment. There it is. Well, he was irritated by the steadfastness of some of these Christians, those that refused to, you might say, take the mark. He goes on and says, for whatever the nature of their creed might be, I could at least feel no doubt that contumacy and inflexible obstinacy deserved chastisement. There were others also possessed with the same infatuation, but being citizens of Rome, I directed them to be carried thither. In other words, man, these, some of these people, they were so obstinate, they deserved to be whipped because they wouldn't re re recant. And these others that were just so infatuated with Christ, but they were Roman citizens, so I couldn't really beat them, so I sent them, sent them to you. You know, sent them on. He goes on. Those who denied they were or ever had been Christians, who repeated after me an invocation to the gods and offered adoration with wine and frankincense to your image, which I had ordered to be brought for that purpose, together with those of the gods and who finally cursed Christ, none of which acts, if is said, those who are really Christians can be forced into performing. These I thought it proper to discharge. In other words here, he's saying those that did recant to prove that they were, you know, so we brought in your image, again, just like we see Antiochus Epiphanes, just what we saw with Caligula, setting up an image to be worshipped. That's what Revelation is talking about too, isn't it? And it says they had to worship them. Now, if they did, we know they're not Christians. Why? He says, because none of which it is said. If you really are a Christian, you can't worship this image. Doesn't that sound a little bit like Daniel as well? Remember the image that was set and you said, you either worship this image or you're going to be thrown into the fire. Well, it's kind of the flip-flop. You see, Satan is always trying to reverse the order of things. It's if you worship the beast that you're thrown into the lake of fire. And Daniel and his friends, they, they understood that. But again, this is a mark of the beast moment, a choice that needed to be made. And I do find it very significant that it says you can't be a Christian if you deny Christ. Even, even in the pagans' mind, they're saying clearly you can't be a Christian if you can sell out that easily. You know, Peter had his moment too. And here's the thing. Remember I asked you, can you accidentally take it? And I said, I, I think you can. 
I think there, uh, there's a time when we are taking the mark of the beast when we live in disobedience to God or we deny God. Peter, when he was asked, you know, you're with him too. And he's sure, no, I'm not, I'm not. Three times, right? But what did Peter then do? He went and he repented. The blood of Jesus overcame. And so Peter had his moment. But what I'm saying is this. I don't necessarily think that the mark of the beast is, oh my goodness, I got a tattoo. I didn't realize that was the mark of the beast. Now I'm going to hell. No, I think the mark of the beast is more spiritual. It's a choice that we make. It's a choice that we have. And we do indeed um, have the choice to repent as well. And this is the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That those who obey and have the testimony of Jesus are going to be saved because his blood covers the, the sins that we've done. But these are sins that we are repentant of, not just sins that are out there that we don't care about, repentant sins. Anyway, um, he goes on and says, others who were named by that informer, so people were squealing on him, just like we've seen throughout history in Nazi Germany, whatever, we're even starting to see that here in this country over things like masks and gatherings and stuff like that. It says, at first confessed themselves Christians and then denied it. True. They had been of the persuasion, but they had quitted it some three years, others many years, and a few as much as 25 years ago. In other words, I said, well, yeah, I was a Christian 25 years ago, but I abandoned that, found out that was silly. He says, they all worshiped your statue in the image of the gods and cursed Christ. This is so sad. When I, when I read this in history, I think, oh, who were those people? You know, some gave you know, uh, worship to God only. And they were rewarded by, um, you know, their, their heavenly reward. They were rewarded by God because they obeyed and they would not bow down. But here others, they gave in and they were rewarded by the Roman government, but they gave up their souls. And so talking about a mark, you might say, well, yeah, I can see obedience, disobedience here as being a mark. But I want to show you that even throughout history, there was literally a physical mark at times as well. We see here, uh, Decius, it's, he basically said that you needed to sacrifice to the Roman gods. And if you did not sacrifice to them, that you were basically also going to be in trouble and to the point of death. And if you would go and make a sacrifice to these gods, you were literally given a certificate, proof that you had paid homage to the gods. And he too, throughout history, has been seen as an antichrist. I do find it interesting, again, not saying the vaccine, not saying the vaccine is a um, 
uh, mark of the beast, but I do find it interesting that this is the very thing that is being talked about for us here as well, that we are going to have certificates or some kind of mark to prove that we have submitted to the government to take this vaccine. Now again, can't say this now. I'm not saying that's the mark of the beast, but I'm saying it's a picture that we see throughout history. Look at this off of CNET, health and wellness, COVID-19 immunity certificates, everything to know about this controversial solution. It says uh, community certificates, sometimes referred to as community passports or immunity cards, are a form of identification to help mark people who have been infected with COVID-19, recovered and developed antibodies to the disease. So in other words, you get this certificate, this allows you to function in society just like you, know, you were allowed to function in Rome. You could go on buying and selling if you had your certificate. Okay, you can go on and travel to this other Roman city and this city. Likewise, you have the certificate, go ahead, get on the airplane. Go ahead and come to this concert. Go ahead, you're welcome into Walmart. The same type of thing is going on. Eusebius records this. It was in the 19th year of the reign of Diocletian in the month of Distress, called March by the Romans, when the Feast of the Savior's Passion was near at hand, basically Passover, that royal edicts were published everywhere commanding that the churches be leveled to the ground and that the scriptures be destroyed by fire and ordering all those who held places of honor be degraded and that the household servants, if they persisted in the profession of Christianity, be deprived of freedom. Got to move this to get it away. In the profession of Christianity, be deprived of freedom. I guess I had part of it there. So, Bottom line, Diocletian was the next in line that we see following these Roman emperors, and he too was terrible to the Christians and Christianity. He too was viewed as an antichrist, and he forced people to sacrifice to the gods, persecuted the saints. What interests me is the fact that it was at the time of Passover when the edict was being passed out. Just like uh, the edict in the United States here really began here at uh, the last Passover season there in March. The first time that the synagogues have ever throughout, you know, the last number of years that, they, that they've been allowed to be there. It's the first time that the Jews did not have uh, their Passover in their synagogues. It's the first time that the Christians who celebrated Passover uh, were not allowed to do it. Today as well, just as the scriptures were to be destroyed, we see people burning the Bibles in streets, if you've ever seen that on the news here recently. Things like this are going on. It goes on, and it says, such, were, such was the first edict against us. But not long after other decrees were issued commanding that all of the rulers of the churches in every place be first thrown into prison and afterwards by every artifice be compelled to sacrifice. In other words, they went after the shepherds, they went after the pastors. If in fact we are in a mark of the beast moment today, I don't know, but if we are, we're seeing very similar things happening today. Pastors are literally being attacked and are being thrown in prison today, thrown in jail, I should say. We see John MacArthur, uh, 
uh, and many others throughout the country that are being fined because they choose to meet. And uh, we're, we're seeing masks as maybe one of these first edicts. But I believe that vaccine is going to be the next one. Okay, we're, we're seeing some very interesting and dangerous things going on in society. And the more that we continue to follow these, the more they continue to put in place. And the question is going to have to be asked someday. Do we fear man in our government more than we fear God? More, maybe, do we fear the virus more than we fear God? These are things that we're going to have to wrestle with, I think, in the very near future. Eusebius goes on and says, The most divine Diocletian and Maximianus, which enjoined that the meetings of the Christians should be abolished. In other words, you couldn't meet anymore. Well, they already shut the churches down once. And there's talk about that going again, especially if they don't abide by the mask mandates and, and you know, a six-foot thing that, you know, only so many people can come to church and have fellowship, those type of things. Many extortions and spoilations had been practiced by officials and that those evils were continually increasing to the detriment of our provincials. You know, they went after the church basically here, extortions and spoliations. They went after the church financially. The land they leased for John MacArthur, they've leased that for over 40 years and they've gone after that church, which is a very large uh, Bible-believing church. They've gone after, after John MacArthur's church financially. I think in the near future, you're going to see things like this don't, taking place in America, where tax breaks are going to be going away. Uh, one church in California, they were fined $5,000 every time they met when they were told they couldn't meet and worship God. These are things that we may be facing, as I said, in the very near future. Ptolemy IV is talked about in, a, in a, an apocryphal book called Thir, uh, Third Maccabees. And uh, not putting this on, on the level of scripture, but as history here, wanted to show you what he said about this. He proposed to inflict public disgrace on the Jewish community. And he set up a store on the tower in the court, or a stone on the tower in the courtyard with this inscription. None of those who do not sacrifice shall enter their sanctuaries and all Jews shall be subjected to a registration involving poll tax into the statue of slaves, status of slaves. Those who object to this are to be taken by force and put to death. So if you didn't abide by the Roman government and how things were to be in worship and in praising God and so on, you became a status of slave and you were to be arrested or put to death. And he continues in saying, those who are registered are also to be branded, branded on their bodies by fire with the ivy leaf symbol of Dionysus. In other words, a mark of the beast. They were literally branded if they did not submit to the Roman authority. Now, so many of what I've been talking about have been Roman emperors, 
Remember when we talked in the book of Daniel, there were four kingdoms. And the Antichrist was supposed to come out of which one? The fourth one. And which was the fourth one? The Roman kingdom. And we talked about that earlier. It says, they shall also be reduced to their former limited status in order that we, he might not appear to be an enemy of all. He inscribed below, but if any of them prefer to join those who have been initiated into the mysteries, they shall have equal citizenship with the Alexandrians. In other words, if you take the mark, you have all the rights of a citizen. You can buy, you can sell, you can travel, you can do all those things. So the point of all of this is I think you need to know the mark of God. And that mark is to obey his word. And if there is anything that is telling us to go against the word of God, then maybe that's our mark of the beast moment. That we need to look at this a little bit more spiritually. Because anything that goes against God is a mark of the devil. It doesn't have to be physical. It doesn't have to be a literal tattoo. It doesn't have to be a literal, you know, microchip that's going to be implanted in your skin. When we see the right hand in the forehead in scripture, it's talking about what's in your mind and what's in your heart, as well as what you do, your service. And I think that that's a more accurate biblical picture of the mark of the beast. Just like we've seen so many times where they were branded or burned here, that Yes, there may be a literal physical mark as well, but I don't think that's the, the prime uh, thing that the scriptures are talking about here. I'm not looking so much for barcodes, tattoos, chips being implanted. I'm looking for something that tells us that we break God's commands. I'm looking for something that I can look at somebody and say, well, they're not Christians. A Christian wouldn't do that. I'm looking for the mark of God. And I think that's very important to uh, keep in mind as we go forward here in um, history. To understand that mark is to understand the mark of God first. So with that, um, I will basically leave it open to some questions here, if anybody has questions. Remember, you'll need to unmute yourself to ask a question as well. Or comments, too. I think it's nice to know that we do have control, quotation marks. Um, we have control whether or not we're going to obey God. That's what it all comes down to. Yeah. And we don't always have to be in fear of the mark, although it identifies things. But still, we can be going against God or being for God without the mark. I mean, the mark is a symbol, but it's still in your heart. Yeah. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and we all have that choice, you know. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, with my theology, and I believe probably yours as well, I don't believe that I can even make that choice without God drawing me to do that. But I believe in his grace and mercy. He gives me that through the Holy Spirit to be able to make that choice. And so that's what he wants us to do. But we do have the ability to reject the grace that he offers us. And we'll know his word because we're in the word. So we'll yep. know when he's talking to us. Without a doubt. Yeah. I just, I really feel revelation is so misunderstood because we do try to put it in such a literal sense and isolate it from the rest of scriptures. And um, I really firmly believe that any first century Jew, when they were reading that revelation about the right, uh, the right hand and the forehead, they knew immediately it was about obedience to someone, not something that they were looking for. Oh, I wonder what it's going to be. You know, are they going to brand us or what? I don't think that's what they were looking for. They understood because of knowing the scriptures well enough that this was talking about a choice to follow God. Anything else from anybody? Well, Russ is up now, so. Well, I just <laughs> want to say thank you, Brian, for uh, everything through this study and very thought-provoking things, things that uh, just like you said, open your mind and um, just cause you to consider where things are at. And especially in the midst of our culture today, <clears throat> a lot of the things that, that are going on, I, I literally just had a conversation with someone yesterday that I, I said, you know, there's, there's things that are out there that can be very controversial um, in the American church. And I, I do think when this vaccine rolls out, um, you know, as it is right now and, and rolling out even more, you know, in early 2021, I do think this is going to be um, a bit of a confrontational thing um, in the American church. And um, I think people need to pray through that. Um, and, um, you know, I, I just asking the Lord to, to help us sort through um, a bit of what that chaos can look like, because there, it is going to be something that's divisive, no matter how you, you land on that on either side. And, um, you know, I think it's important to try to keep our focus on Christ through all of that. And, um, just uh, again, um, doing what we can to advance the kingdom. And, um, you know, at that point, uh, you know, it's going to get interesting. It'll get interesting when, when things start to come out and, um, you, you start to hear things. And I think we'll hear more and more as early 2021, uh, kind of rolls around here. So, but, uh, I think that's a very important thing for everybody, not only to be praying, but to do your research. You know, I have a tendency to talk about things that a lot of churches or pastors do not want to talk about. And sometimes it's easy because I can come into a church and bark the things and then go away. And, you know, then it's not the pastor's fault. It's that crazy guy that we had come and speak. We just won't have him come back again. You know, that kind of thing. But bottom line is, I think it's very important for people 
I even think churches at this point to be educating their people about what's going on with these things because we do only hear sometimes one side of it. And whether it be the vaccine or the elections or, or anything that's out there, we need to start doing research because there's a lot more going on than what a lot of people get to hear about on the surface. And um, I think that if you do that, there's going to be a better chance of unity because like you said, even masks right now are dividing churches, um, let alone the vaccine, that that is going to be something that can be very divisive. And that's not what God wants. He doesn't want us to be divisive. And so uh, I think it's important for us not to just be thinking emotionally on things, um, but to look at it, to do research, to study the scriptures, to be praying in advance, and to talk about it with one another so that it doesn't just come show up and divide a church. Uh, because I too see that that is going to be one of the things in the future. And that's what Satan wants. He wants to divide because a house divided against itself cannot stand. And it's going to be important that people are um, forgiving, um, that there isn't judgment um, on either side, but to be educated. And if some people choose to go on one side or the other of whatever issue it may be, to be able to love one another still. And uh, to, to have that mindset going into it is going to be important. And of course, I'm talking about things that would not, uh, you know, be in disobedience to God, which, you know, at this point, you know, wearing a mask as an example, that, that's not being disobedient to God. So. Any other questions out there? More of a comment. Not discussing this with other people would be hiding it under a bushel. Well, I think in, in specifically, it's talking about the gospel, I think in that context, but I think it does apply to this, yes. That mm -hmm. truth matters. And like I said, that's why I talk about things in our Bible study that often is not heard in a church because truth is truth. You know, in politics, it's it, truth matters even in politics. Truth matters in church. Truth matters in my family. And if we don't, you know, talk about things and we don't have truth coming out to expose darkness, whatever it might be, that's where Satan is allowed to work. Um, you know, I even say that in confessing sins, that there are so many people who are in sin and they, they, they keep it under in darkness and there's no way that they can ever overcome it because it has to be brought into the light, be exposed to the light for uh, the devil to run. He hates the truth. He hates the light. And so when we talk about things and can talk about truth, even when it's a hard truth, uh, Satan is scared. And uh, because, like I said, truth does matter. Even when it's not a sin issue, truth is important. Mm -hmm. yes. Well, Brian, thank you so much. We appreciate you, your ministry, um, just all the efforts that you put toward your teaching and um, the diligence. Um, 
you're just a gift from God and the things that God has equipped you with, we're very grateful for here at faith. And, um, you know, we just want to share a prayer blessing over you and, um, and then we'll go ahead and close our evening tonight, but just thank you very much, Brian. We really appreciate everything. You bet. Well, before you pray, just let me thank you all as well. Um, you have been a blessing to me in so many ways, your prayers, your support, these, these studies being able to share with you and just seeing what God is doing in your congregation is, uh, it brings me great joy. And um, I'm just, when I think of churches, and I may have said this before, um, and I hope anybody who's watching this in your area hears this, that I, I go to many churches around the country and I see the good, the bad, and the ugly. And when I've been there at faith, even after the very first time I was there, I, I, I could feel the Spirit of God working there through the people. Um, I, I saw something that I don't get to see often in many churches. And if anybody is listening to this that does not go to faith, I would really encourage you uh, to go see what I saw there in those few times that I've been able to come there because um, I know uh, with my conversations that I've had with Pastor Russ, I know nobody's perfect, but uh, he is a man who loves the Lord, has a heart for the Lord and a heart for the people there. And um, I am just very grateful for faith and restoring faith in me for some of the churches that are going on because like I see I see a lot more of the the bad and the ugly than I do the good and um, it, it's it's been an encouragement to see that so thank you guys well, thank you Brian appreciate that let's pray everybody to close our time father we thank you so much for the sweet sweet presence of your spirit through this whole study through this time in your word and just growing together Thank you again for Brian, for his, for his life, for his family, for his ministry. We pray for a blessing, Lord, in the days ahead. And as he prepares for 2021, Lord, I just ask there would be great things ahead for his ministry and the things that you have in store for all that you're going to do in and through Creation Instruction Association, through Brian through his family. We just give you praise and thanksgiving for that, Lord. Father, we ask for your grace upon every home that's listening right now, that's praying. And we just ask, Lord, that your favor would be upon our homes, upon our lives, so that we can be a blessing in your kingdom. And help us, Lord, to advance the things of God with great fervor and, um, Lord, just with passion and to live for you, sold out in this culture, Lord, that desperately needs hope. Help us to be people who are bringing Christ to others. And we thank you for all of this now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.